following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. We are going to, we are going to go ahead and get started with our Sunday school hour, uh, so we will go ahead and pray um, and ask the Lord's help. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, O God, for another Lord's Day in which we can come and gather together as your people and to worship your great name, to worship our our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We bless you for this week. We thank you, O God, for how you've provided for us each and every day, both our physical and our spiritual needs. We thank you, Father, that we can now fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, O Father, that we would set aside the things that we um, that preoccupy our minds every other day of the week, and that we would set our we would set our minds on the things above this day. That we would uh, look to Christ. That our hearts would be fed from Your Word. That we would be fed by the means of grace. That as we come together and worship Your great name, that we would uh, adore You and worship You aright with. Uh, uh, with a true heart, with a heart that loves you. And Father, we thank you for this day. We pray for our Sunday school hour that you would bless our time as we survey the, the book of 1 Samuel. And we ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So as you can see, today we are covering uh, the book of 1 Samuel. Um, so we arrive now uh, to these books. And as you know, we're covering in the Sunday school hour, we cover various topics uh, one of them being we survey the different books of the Bible. And um, it's amazing to think not too long ago we were in Revelation and now we're in 1 Samuel. So before, you'll know it, before you know it, we'll be in the New Testament. So the book of 1 Samuel. Um, so let's begin with the title of the book, very simply. Now the books of Samuel, um, and I say that because originally they weren't divided into, into two, into two parts. They were actually, uh, this actually came about through the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Uh, in that work, they actually treated Samuel and the book of Kings as well as uh, they split it into different parts. So you had First Samuel, uh, the book of Samuel. It was split into First and Second Samuel, or as they would call it, First and Second Kingdoms. And then the book of Kings, it was actually Third and Fourth Kingdoms. Um, so that's where we get this division of First and and Second Samuel. It, originally, it's not in the Hebrew Bible uh, split into two. It's actually just considered one book, the Book of Samuel. And so, <clears throat> throughout the throughout our history, we see out of this kind of grew up, grew this tradition of of dividing the books this way. So that's where we get First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings. Um, and partly, I think, as well, we see when we look at the history is also the length of the book that also influenced the decision to split the books into two um, because of its length, as we will see. Uh, the book of First Samuel has 30 chapters that we will try to cover in our time, and I'm going to do my best to stick with my allotted time. Now, <clears throat> obviously, the title of this book is called First Samuel, so it's derived from, derived from the fact that Samuel was this key transitional figure in this time in the history of Israel. It was Samuel who God uses to raise up in the beginning, as we shall see. He ra- or, or God raises up Samuel as a prophet, and it was Samuel who anointed the first kings of Israel as well, uh, Saul and David. 
So there we have the title of the book um, and the author. Now we're going to consider the authorship. Now, I don't mean to be, you know, unnecessarily uh, funny, but the reality is that the authorship of this book, it's a bit, uh, you know, it's debated. Like many, some of the books of the Old Testament, it's hard to determine. There's, you know, even when you read various scholars, um, you have different opinions or different perspectives, but uh, you know, who wrote the book of Samuel or First and Second Samuel? Obviously, it bears the name of Samuel. So, you know, initially one would think it was Samuel himself who wrote the book, and that is, that is quite possible. Um, but one of the things that I want to point out as we consider who actually authored the book is there are several things we need to take into consideration. First, Samuel himself dies in First Samuel chapter 25. So obviously that logically leaves the question, well, after he died, he obviously couldn't have recorded the events that took place after his death, so that at least, you know, we have to question, uh, did he write all of it, or did he write some portions of it, maybe the first 24 chapters, and someone else, um, like we see in, in the first five books with Moses, you know, maybe Moses, Moses wrote the majority, but maybe there were some key areas where uh, maybe Aaron or other men filled in the rest of the details that took place after the death. So, you know, some have suggested that the majority of the material was written by uh, Samuel before his death, and then maybe after he died, someone took over the writing and, and compiled the different things we see. Some scholars, they refer to First Chronicle, uh, Chronicles chapter 29, verse 29, which reads, All the events of King David's reign from beginning to end, are written in the record of Samuel the seer, the record of Nathan the prophet, and the record of Gad the seer. So the, a lot of scholars will point to that to, to, see, to, to show there that, um, you know, to, to point to the authorship or their, their perspective that it was Samuel who wrote part of it, but there were these other men, maybe Nathan, Gad, who filled in the rest. The second consideration is that the name of Samuel, Samuel doesn't appear anywhere in 2 Samuel. And so, you know, I say all of this, my short answer is, you know, it, it, it's, it's simply we do not know with great certainty. Um, you know, the books were probably compiled from different sources, uh, including Samuel. But although there is uncertainty about the human author, you know, we can be sure of this, that ultimately it's God himself who is the author and he has preserved it for us in his word. Now, Next, and that, there's First Chronicles 29, 29, if you want to look at it later. But if, next, let's consider the form and structure of the book of First Samuel. Now, as you read through the book of First Samuel, you know, one naturally, as you read it, you get a sense that this is, this is history. You're reading real events that took place. You're reading real history. And so without complicating things, you know, the book itself, is, it's a record of the national life of Israel beginning with the birth of Samuel and then ending on chapter 31 with, uh, with Saul taking his own life. And so all in between, we see a historical narrative. Now, however, of course, within that historical narrative, we do see other elements as well that the, that the authors kind of weaved into the story. Uh, we see other various literary forms. We see prayer. In chapter 2, we look at Hannah's song of prayer as she gives thanks to God for answering her prayer. We see poetry. Uh, we see short stories. We see obituaries. We see 
you know, and there's other things. We see songs in the book of 1 Samuel that we could point out. So the grand scheme, it's, it's historical narrative, but there's other literary forms weaved into the story as well. But the point of all this is that the writer of Samuel is doing more than just giving us history, right? He's doing more than just giving us facts. But, you know, this is history that's written with a purpose. And its purpose is, is nothing less than being historical. It's, it's all true and accurate. But as we read it, he's, you know, the author Samuel and the others, they're doing much more than just giving us history. We're being shown who God is and how he rules his people. And we're being pointed forth to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Christ of God. Now here I included a brief timeline. Uh, this, this is not original with me. And so just to give you a visual of the dates, um, and of course you can see there that these dates are approximate because even, for example, uh, where Sa- uh, the, the date of the birth of Samuel, um, here I have it as 1150 B.C. Some scholars say 1100 B.C., others say 1120. So, but you get the general, the general idea. It's, it's in that general time period. We see Saul born 1150 B.C., I'm sorry, Samuel born, and then you can see there it outlines for you when Saul becomes king, when David is born, and so on. Here is a map, which I thought this was just a, um, a cool visual to give you an idea. Sometimes we read of all these locations, and it's a little hard to visualize where all of this is taking place. But here you see the major, the major locations where all the events took place in the book of 1 Samuel. Um, you see especially, of course, Bethlehem, Ramah, Jerusalem, Ebenezer, Shiloh. And then here we see uh, Samuel's early life where the scriptures tell us that Elkanah and, and Hannah, they would go up uh, to offer sacrifices and to worship the Lord. And so this is the journey that they would take from Ramah to Shiloh and back. It doesn't appear much to us, but of course, you know, they didn't have cars back then, so... Now, what's the aim and structure? What is the aim and structure or the aim and the argument of the book of 1 Samuel? You know, something that's important to note is, as I mentioned, in the Hebrew Bible, unlike in our English Bibles, the order of the books, the order of the books means that actually, you know, when you look at your Bible, before 1 Samuel comes the book of Ruth, but in the Hebrew Bible, it's actually Judges and then begins with, first, with Samuel. Um, so, you know, that order tells us something. When you read, you know, if you, if you were to turn to the book of Judges and, and you finish the book of Judges and you read this last verse here that in those days Israel had no king and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes, that's the last line you read and then you pick up with the book of 1 Samuel and it's kind of, yeah, this is the setting that's being put before you. That there was no king in these days. Everyone did what was good and right in their own eyes. And in many ways, the story of 1 Samuel is, is a solution to that problem. The book of Samuel, of 1 and 2 Samuel, they were originally one book, as I mentioned. And so the book of Samuel starts with no king, but it ends with a king. The days when Israel had no king, they were days of moral anarchy. The final chapters of the book of Judges, they, they make for very grim reading. Um, I can't remember in Sunday school when I was a child growing up, but, you know, these are the kind of stories that usually, uh, you know, you weren't taught in Sunday school or they were skipped over because they were very brutal and ugly. 
And this is what life is when there is no king. When there is no king and everyone does as they see fit. Now, it is true that Israel had no king, but fundamentally that was because they refused to acknowledge that God was their king. The Lord was to be Israel's king. So in reality, their problem was not that they lacked a king. Their problem was lack of obedience to God as king. And so we will see that this continues into the book of Samuel. We will see Israel asking for a king, and we will see God regarding that as a rejection of his rule. We will see the rule of the first king, Saul, and then we will wonder whether Israel having a king is really much of an improvement at all. Even with, even, I mean, at least for sure with, with Saul, but even with David, we don't see that in 1 Samuel, but in 2 Samuel, you see the rise of, of King David, and, and that proves to be a mixed blessing. There was good and there was bad. So 1 Samuel leaves us looking beyond the history of ancient Israel. Israel's kings, they were, when you read through 1 Samuel, you know, they were anointed with oil. They were known as the anointed ones. Or we could say as, as they were known as, uh, that's where we got the term Messiah in Hebrew or, or Christ in Greek. And so as we see the disastrous reign of Saul, as we see the disastrous reign of Saul, the king that Israel asked for, and we see the flawed reign of David, the king that God blesses people with, we are being pointed towards the Lord Jesus Christ. The one man who rules God's people in the way that God wants. God himself promised David that one of his sons would reign over God's people forever. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so here in 1 Samuel, we see the history of the first Christ, as it were, leaving us longing for the rule of the ultimate Christ. So next, this is the outline, or actually I wanted to highlight some key verses from, you know, obviously we can't read the entire, chap the entire book together here. So I wanted to just highlight some key verses that stood out to me in 1 Samuel. Of course, there are more that we can talk about, but these are just some that stood out to me. 1 Samuel 2, 6-7, the Lord, this is in Hannah's prayer. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. 1 Samuel 3.10, I remember this story in very vividly in, in growing up in my youth, um, reading about this in Sunday school, and the Lord came and stood calling as, of, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. First Samuel 6.20, Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? 1 Samuel 15.22, has the Lord, this is Samuel speaking to Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. 1 Samuel 16.7, a very popular verse that, that all of us have memorized, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And this brings great comfort to me, for those of us who are of shorter stature. First uh, Samuel 17, the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. That was David 
speaking to Goliath. So here's our outline for the book of Samuel that I want to follow as we kind of take an overview. I'm going to try to run through the book and, and bring out the, the main points, or the main highlights. Um, you know, we could, there's different ways that you could outline the book of 1 of Samuel. I think the easiest way for me is as I was reading through the book is I just see these three key figures. I see Samuel, I see Saul, and I see David. And of course, there's other important figures within, but I think these are the three men that are really at the center, the main protagonists in, in the book of 1 Samuel. So, uh, you know, the easiest way, I think, is to outline it based on um, their lives and what God calls them to do. So first, we see in the first seven chapters that God calls Samuel. Then we see from chapter 8 to 12 that God then calls Saul as king. And then in verse, uh, chapter 13 to 15, we see that God rejects Saul as king. And then finally, in chapter 16 and onward, we see that God calls David as king. So let's consider first the life of Samuel. Now, the first protagonist that we encounter in 1 Samuel is the one who the book is named after. It begins with his birth. And Samuel provides a picture of a leader who is a man of God's word. He is a man of the word. He is the last judge of Israel. He is one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And, and the book here contains his life story. And so in chapter 1, we are introduced to a barren woman named Hannah who is crying out to God for a child. And, and the Lord grants her prayer and she bears a son who she names Samuel because the Lord has heard her cry and has answered her prayer. And so we see there that she then made, she made a promise to the Lord that if he would give her a child, that she would hand the boy over to the Lord's service where he would be reared all the days of his life. And then in chapter 2, we see or we read of Hannah's prayer and thanksgiving to God, followed by the account of Eli's wicked sons. And, you know, I, as I was preparing for 1 Samuel, I, I really enjoy... I think probably the first two, three chapters are my favorite in the entire book. You know, we love reading about Goliath and, and, and him killing Goliath and slaying him with, the, with his own sword. And we read all these other accounts that as men, sometimes, you know, they, they get us excited and amped up. But for me, the first three chapters of, of 1 Samuel are, I think, the most beautiful in the entire book. And really, if, if you understand Hannah's song or her prayer, I think it's actually the key to understanding the entire book itself and the whole and the story of redemption, for that, for that matter. But Hannah's song, as we see, and I just want to point out some things to you and underline a few things there. Without, I don't want to skip over this part because I think it is important. Hannah's song or her prayer, you know, it's, it's an odd song. It's a, it's a weird song. You know what I mean, if you think as if you were a woman and you gave birth after you've been praying to the Lord for such a long time, at least in my mind, you know, I would think that this really wouldn't be the song that you would come up with to mark the arrival of a new baby. Because when you read her song, you know, she writes things like, the bows of the warrior are broken. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. So she writes these things that give us, uh, you know, the, there are certain clues in Hannah's story. And so I think Hannah's story is really, it's more of a picture of Israel's story. And we could stretch it out even further. I think Hannah's story is really a picture of the human race, of the story of humanity. Like Hannah, we are barren and unfruitful, spiritually speaking. 
But you notice that the, in the story of Hannah and her song, the movement is, is, is from a barren woman to a fruitful woman. We see God bringing life where there is no life. We see there that like Hannah, we are beset by enemies. Israel's enemies were the Philistines and, and they were in one sense a picture of, of, all the, of the enemy of the human race, which is sin and death. But the movement of Hannah's story, we notice there in chapter 1, verse 6, that she was a woman who was provoked by her rival. You remember the other wife of Elkanah? I can't remember her name right now, but she would provoke her, right? Because she did have children, and so she would provoke her to jealousy. And then we see there in, in her prayer that Hannah writes in chapter 2, verse 1, that my mouth boasts over my enemies. And so the song of Hannah is, is full of reversals. In chapter 1, verse 8, Elkanah, her husband, tells her, you know, why are you sad or why are you downhearted? And men, I mean, <laughs> as I was reading this book, I jokingly told, I think I told Janela at one point, if I would, I would jokingly tell her if I would see her sad, I would tell her, you know, why are you sad? Um, am I not better to you than 10 sons or something? Like that? You know, there's a line really to, as I was reading that, I was like, he's not, he's not too wise in saying that. But... Um, <laughs> You know, here in Hannah's song, uh, she begins to rejoice. She says that my heart rejoices, my horn is lifted high, and the horn is a picture of strength. And so, you know, Hannah is boasting in her victory against her enemies, but perhaps, uh, you know, in representation, uh, that horn represents overall the, the victory that God would give to his people. And I think Elkanah's family is a picture of Israel. You see different highs and lows. You see uh, Elkanah's proud wife versus his humble wife. I think Hannah represents the story of the book of, of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. Hannah's song starts with the word my, which is repeated three times in verse 1. But after that, the focus pans out to what is true for God's people as a whole. The Lord is mentioned nine times in the song. He is the actor. He's the main protagonist. He is sovereign. In verse 2, she says that there is no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. There's no rock like our God. And if you read on later in, in, in 2 Samuel, this is actually the same refrain from David's song at the close of, of 2 Samuel in chapter 22, uh, verses 2 to 3, uh, verse 32, and, and also verse 47. And so it is the opinion of the Lord that matters, not ours or, or those of us that are around him. And so wh what the Lord had done for Hannah is a picture or a pointer to what he would do for his people. Hannah lists a series of reversals that clearly move beyond her own personal experience to God's people as a whole. Indeed, the reversals there uh, that she describes, they're rooted in creation. She writes in verse 8, For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's, are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. At creation, God turned darkness into light and emptiness into fullness and chaos into order. And so Hannah's song, it really serves as a key to interpreting this entire book. In these lines, we hear what I think to be the main theme of the book. It is not by strength that one prevails. As she writes in verse 9, Chapter 2, we will see that it's not human power that counts, but it's divine power. She writes, the Lord brings low and he exalts. That's the agenda for this book. The first time we meet Saul, he's described as someone who's head and shoulders above everyone else. 
And he was very pleasing to look at. And the people, they saw him and they viewed, this, they viewed him as this great man. And they were impressed by him. But at the end of 1 Samuel, we read that he, he, he was fallen on Mount Gilboa. So the Lord brings low and the Lord exalts. Further on, Hannah's story is told because it is part of a bigger story. The story of God's provision of a Savior. Hannah's son Samuel will re would reestablish God's rule over God's people. He would deliver the people from their enemies and bring them and judge them with justice. And perhaps, perhaps this part right here is not, it's not original with me. Um, it's from a man named Tim Chester. But he writes this. Perhaps Hannah is a picture too of the church in our generation. We are favored by God but appear to be barren. In most of the West, we lack children in the sense of converts, certainly in significant numbers. Instead, like Hannah, we are mocked by our rivals. So we need Hannah's story and song as a reminder that the gospel will triumph and God will vindicate his name. So in the meantime, what should we do? In her deep anguish, we're told that Hannah prayed to the Lord. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if in a few decades or centuries, whether in this world or in eternity, that it could be said of the church in our generation that like Hannah, in its barrenness and its weakness, that we turn to the Lord in desperate prayer and not away from Him in defeat. Hannah concluded her song with these words, He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Now this may not strike us as particularly remarkable, but it's actually a big surprise because remember at this point in the story there was no king in Israel. There was no king. And so Hannah saying that God's king is coming. And when he does come, he will turn the world upside down. And that directs our attention forward in this story. And, you know, this last thing, I know I'm taking long with this part, but I'm not sure if you've ever thought of this, but I couldn't help but think of making the connections between Hannah's song of prayer and Mary's Magnificent. Like Hannah, Mary sings a song of prayer prayer, a song of praise to God in response to her conception. Hannah sings, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. You see, Jesus takes those who are dead in sin and gives them new life in his name. Jesus takes those who are weighed down by guilt and he lifts them up. Uh, to sit with him in glory, and he brings those down to judgment who proudly defy God, but he exalts those who humbly admit their need of him. Immediately after the story of Hannah, we read of that famous story, as I mentioned in chapter 3, of the Lord speaking to Samuel as a boy. And again, I can remember this story very vividly in Sunday school. Moving on, we have in chapters 4 to 6, we have the conflict of Israel with the the Philistines there as they capture the Ark of God and then in chapter 6 they recover uh, its return to Israel. In chapter 7, Samuel leads Israel in repentance from idolatry with a great victory against the Philistines. And this is where Samuel sets up a stone, a, a monumental stone, and he calls it Ebenezer. And this is where, if you remember the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that's where we get this term Ebenezer. The hymn writer wrote, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. And this is where it comes from. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. That word Ebenezer, it means stone of help. 
And so Samuel set this stone up to remind Israel that the Lord had helped them to defeat the Philistines. And so what happens after chapter 8? I think normally, you know, as the years passed and, and although this monument had been set up as a reminder of God's fidelity to his people and his sovereign care, what do we read of in chapter 8? And, you know, this is a, a repeated cycle that we see all throughout the Old Testament. If, I mean, if this were a sermon, I would probably plug in here a reminder or a warning to all of us to not think too highly of ourselves. You know, it's easy to sit in our comfortable chairs and to pass judgment and against the people of Israel for, for their sins, but it is ironic, isn't it? It's ironic because you read through the Old Testament and it's, it's this sort of vicious cycle. You see this cycle where God delivers his people and then maybe a chapter later or a verse later, we find them rebelling against God. The people demanded a king. But before we move on to consider Saul, let me end this section about Samuel by saying again that Samuel was a man of God's word and he was marked by obedience. He was a man who obeyed God's commands faithfully, even when, things, even when those commands were perhaps unusual things. His life epitomizes those words that he spoke to, Paul, uh, to Saul in chapter 15. But Samuel replied and told Saul, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than, the offering, than offering the fat of rams. Now, while Samuel is not the main character, I would actually argue, of First and Second Samuel, despite the book being named after him, it characterizes or he characterizes some of the best things about godly leadership. Um, and, and we see in his ministry that he centers really on, on, on the word of God, hearing the word of God, speaking the word of God, obeying the word of God. So that's the life of uh, kind of an overview of Samuel in the book of, uh, of 1 Samuel. But let's move on to consider the life of Saul. Now, I, I do want to clarify very quickly this theme in chapter 8, where the people ask for a king, I, I don't believe that the sin of the people was necessarily asking for a king. You remember the book of Judges, it presupposes that the, rea the reality that the people needed a king. As, as the book of, Samuel, of Judges ends, in those days there was no king and there was anarchy. And so I think it presupposes the need that the, peop that the people had for a king. And, and remember that key phrase, that Israel had no king in those days. And they did what was right in their own eyes. And, and you can also recall in, in the Old Testament that God had promised earlier that he would give them a king. We see that in Genesis 17, in Genesis 6, uh, 35, in Genesis 49, Numbers 24. In Deuteronomy 17, we see there the, the, the guidelines that were given uh, from God on how to select a king. So I don't believe that their sin was necessarily asking for a king, but instead their great sin was in, I, I believe, in the type of king that they asked for. The people are not asking for the king whom God has promised. They're asking for a king, and, and quoting here, such as all the other nations have. They, or when Samuel describes what, what such, a, claim, what such a, a king will claim as his rights, meaning when the people were asking for a king, Samuel was warning them, and he was telling them, this is what's going to happen. This king that you want, this is what he's going to claim. But the people insisted repeatedly. They demanded for a king over them. In uh, verse 19, 
in verse 19 to 20, they said they, they wanted a king. Then, then we shall be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And, and you have to ask yourself, why do they want a king as all the other nations? Why do they want a king? Well, because they wanted Israel to be a nation like the other nations. In essence, they, wanted, they no longer wanted to be Israel. The repeated refrain that we see in the, book of, in the law of Moses is uh, to be holy because I am holy. The t- you know, we tend to use the word holy uh, to mean something morally pure, and, and that, that is correct, but you know, one of the key features of who God is is his moral purity, but it's also, you know, that, that's a bit just, a, it's a little simplistic. You know, originally the word holy meant distinct or set apart, or we could say, uh, we might say the word unlike. The people of Israel, they were called to be unlike the other nations. They were called to be different. They were called to be set apart. But now we see that they wanted the opposite. They wanted to be like the other nations. That was their great sin. It was their rejection of God himself. The kingship promised by God was to be different from all the other monarchies and kingship of the nations that surrounded Israel. The human ruler of Israel was not supposed to be autonomous. He was not supposed to be autonomous and, and you know, report to himself, but he was to be subject to God and to his word, fully dependent on God's rule, on God's word as the rule and authority of the kingdom. But, you know, we see that's not what they wanted. The foundation of, of biblical kingship is that God ultimately is king and he will always be king. The psalmist proclaims in Psalm 10, verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. But unfortunately, Israel's first king, Saul, turned out to be exactly what Samuel warned the people about. Saul's kingship, it began well, but then it, it quickly became dark and dysfunctional. Now, moving along in chapters 10 and 11, we see the selection and the anointing of Saul as king. And we're given, the, again, the picture of Saul as a very impressive man. They were, they were impressed with his physical stature, with his appearance, he was very handsome, tall, impressive. He stood head and shoulders over all the people. So my guess is, you know, this guy had to be at least, you know, six feet and above. I'm thinking like six five or something like that. But, um, you know, so we see him presented there. Obviously, it doesn't tell us. I'm, I'm just kidding. It doesn't tell us his exact height. But, I mean, you know, if he's head and shoulder above the people of Israel, they're generally not very tall people, so... Maybe six plus. Anyways, after his initial victory over the Ammonites in chapter 11, we, we have that high point in the life of Saul and his career as king. And then after there, you know, the next 20 chapters of 1 Samuel, they sort of just go downhill or straight downhill in the life of Saul. And, you know, as, as I reflected on, on this portion of the book, you know, it's, it's clear that the issue is not that Saul is, is tall and impressive and good looking, but I think the issue is that he actually believed it himself. He, he not only, you know, he believed it himself. He, he was impressive to himself. He believed the hype, as, as the kids say nowadays. He thought too highly of himself, and we see this all throughout the book. God would give, uh, he would give, I keep wanting to say Paul, but it's Saul. God would give Saul a command through Samuel, and what would we see? You know, he would take that command, and it was a plain command, but he wouldn't do it. He would always change something. He would alter it because he thought that, you know, that he knew better 
than God himself. And so when God would tell him, you know, to skipping ahead to chapter 13, when God, when Samuel, when God through Samuel told Saul uh, to, to wait for him to sacrifice, what do we see there? Saul went ahead and, and he was impatient and he, he did the sacrifice himself. He couldn't wait for Samuel. And so we see similar situations like that in chapter 14 and 15. And then finally in chapter 31, where you see there where Saul consults the, the medium of Endor instead of God himself. So, you know, we see all of these things in the life of Saul. And, and if Saul was an impressive man who even thought much of himself, David was the complete opposite. At least in, in 1 Samuel, David, Saul is... is, is um, he makes much of himself in his own estimation. He, 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 he's very prideful, and we see the opposite in David, that he's very humble, and, and he relies completely on the Lord. David doesn't make much of himself. David was, if Saul was an impressive man, David was an impressed man. He was not preoccupied with what others thought of him, but he was a man who was marked by his humility and trust in the Lord. He lived in complete awe of God. You know, some people, they try to impress you with their talents. They try to impress you with their gifts, their height, or, or whatever, whatever, you know, whatever other gift or, or thing we can think of. But others, there are, there are certain people, there are, there are believers who leave you impressed with their God. Their, their life is a reflection of, of their awe of God. It's, it's, they, they are a, it's a reflection of God's glory, and they're humble, and they're always pointing to God as the, the very fountain of everything good within us. And so we see there that, um, you know, David was a person. He was, he was that kind of person that we read of in 1 Samuel. And I think we see this most evidence in the story of, of David and Goliath. You know, even if you didn't grow up in church, maybe you're not even a Christian this morning, but you've heard the story of David and Goliath at some point. You know, it's just so ingrained in our culture that it, it's a story that everyone knows and it's just it's become a moralistic story of you know defeating the giants in your life and and overcoming great obstacles but um, you know we see here that that David was so consumed with the glory of God that he actually goes out there and he faces this giant not because of his own strength or his own courage but out of faith and confidence in the power of God he tells David says to Goliath, he goes out there and tells him, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." Now, unfortunately, I have to skip over many details, but I think the majority of us are very familiar with the life of David in 1 Samuel. We're told that he's a man after God's own heart. We're told that he was a man of integrity who feared the Lord, and, and Saul, grew, Saul grew jealous of this. And so, you know, at various times through 1 Samuel, Saul actually tries to kill. He's pursuing David various times, and he's trying to kill David. But David actually, on several occasions, had the opportunity to kill Saul but, but he doesn't take it. He, decide, he, you know, he, he comments and says that he, he, he didn't want to touch the Lord's anointed. He still had a reverence and, and a respect for Saul, and, and we see his integrity. 
And so we see in, in the book of First Samuel, in the second half of First Samuel, that David is presented to us as to what a king should be. And indeed, he, he is the greatest king of Israel. He provides a picture of a man who is not consumed with himself, but he's consumed with the Lord. And so finally, moving on to consider, oh, that was actually my last slide. So finally, in the time that remains, I'm making good time. I'm very happy. I have five minutes left. In the, in the time that remains, from all the things that we've considered, I just want to highlight um, a practical lesson or, or what's a, a lesson or two that we can learn from 1 Samuel. And I think it's this. You know, I think that even when we look at the life of Saul and when we compare him with David and we see these contrasting qualities, uh, even when we consider the life of David, you know, we have to realize this, brothers and sisters, that even, even David, with all his wonderful qualities, even with all his wonderful qualities, he is not the king that God's people need. As we see later, in, in, as you're going to see later in 2 Samuel, when we do the survey of 2 Samuel, he was a sinner as well in need of a redeemer. And so God, in, in his sovereign plan of redemption, he was orchestrating all of these things. All these things that we have seen to bring about the great king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come through the line of Jesse and David. And as we began the book of 1 Samuel, the story leading uh, to the birth of Samuel, and, and it begins with, with his faithful mother, Hannah, uh, we see there that she understood that both her safety and the safety of her nation did not lie in the hands of an earthly judge or an earthly king, but in the hands of God himself. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And so, as we think about the book of 1 Samuel, what's in, in, in my estimation, what's, what's the main theme or what's the, the main point that we can bring out of all of this? And I think it's this, that in this world, there are two kingdoms. There are two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the world. And it often looks as if the kingdom of Christ is it's, 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 it's on a downward trajectory, you know, especially in, in the Western world as we look at our culture and, and how things are degrading but faith trusts the promises of God. David's story so far is a lesson that worldly status is not all that it may seem. Those who are, are high are not always those with the future. The Lord brings low and he exalts. But the kingdom of Christ will triumph. At the end of history, the choirs of heaven will sing what we read of in Revelation 11 verse 15. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so the question for us to end our Sunday school lesson is this. There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world. To which do you belong? And I'm a few minutes early, so we will close in prayer. <laughs> Let's close and give thanks to the Lord. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this Sunday school hour. We thank you, O oh God, that for those of us who are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we, we have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son. 
We are thankful, O God, that our eyes have been opened, that the scales have been removed from our eyes, and that we are united to the Lord Jesus, that he is our elder brother, that you are our father, that we are your children, and that we can approach your throne. We can approach your throne and with a good conscience, with a clear conscience, knowing that our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And so, Father, we, as we come to worship you today, I do pray, I do pray, O oh God, that if there be any among us today, we may have many visitors as it is Christmas Eve. Lord, we do pray that there, that there would be a great outpouring of your Holy Spirit today, that your Spirit would come with power and much assurance that the preacher would proclaim the word of God clearly, accurately, O oh God, and that there would be sinners here who would see this Lord Jesus, that they would see this King, uh, and that they would bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ before it's too late. Uh, because we know that your word tells us that one day every knee will bow and confess that Christ is Lord. And so we do pray, Father, that as we draw near to your throne of grace, as we uh, draw near to worship you, to sing praises and to read your word and to pray, oh God, that you would come and speak to us through your word. And so we thank you for this Lord's Day. May you receive much glory, much honor, and we pray that it would be a blessing to all of us here. And we ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.